Hey listeners, your co-host Cass. I'm just popping in here real quick before you give this episode a listen to to give some trigger warnings. Although we don't dive too much into it, we do heavily discuss and bring up some of the ethics of displaying rape scenes or implied rape scenes on screen in television and movies. So if that's something that you'd like to avoid and or at all connected to religious affiliations like the Catholic Church, please get past this episode for your own good. As always, take care. Stay creepy, all, and can't wait to join you in the next episode. Bye. Welcome back, gals, ghouls, and badass days of the world. I am your co-host, Cass Clark, and joined, as always, by my co-host, Ryan C. Bradley. Hello. And today we have a special guest. Miguel, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your love of horror and the topic of today, non-exploitation? <laughs> yeah, of course. First of all, thank you, Cass and Ryan, for having me on. I really appreciate that. Uh, my name is Miguel Myers, ATX. I host a horror podcast called My Horror Confessional, where um, every week I have a guest come on and talk about one classic horror movie that they haven't seen and why. And we kind of, we get into it uh, about like the the actors, trivia, just everything along the way. We get off topic quite a bit. And uh, the, the movie has to be at least 20 years old because I love older movies. Um, I'm an old head. My season two was called My 70s Confessional with my friend and co-host, Anthony Jerome, man, where he hated. I had him on for Black Christmas. And in the process of that, he said that he hated the 70s. And so I said, whoa, 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 whoa. First of all, don't be disrespectful. I ended my season. I never anticipated having seasons, but I ended my first season and said, okay, from now on, we're going to do My 70s Confessional. And we had 10 episodes um, one movie each year and just like me getting trying to change his mind in the 70s so that wrapped up a couple months ago now i'm back on uh, just having guests come on ryan actually was on for the first episode of season three and we talked about eyes of laura mars and yeah we just had a just have a blast uh love horror love talking about it one of my favorite subgenres is non-exploitation i actually did uh, satanical pandemonium from 1978 or 77 i don't remember exactly and i did that with uh, anthony jerome m and um he kind of has a love for it now too so when you guys uh, asked me to come on the show and suggested some topics i was like yeah we got to do non-exploitation and um to be completely fair i haven't done my own research on it so I was like, oh, I can get Ryan to do the research for for me and I can learn about it. So I had a bit of a, a, a second reasoning for that as well. Nice. Um, before we get into it, you also have a Patreon where you donate the money each month, right? That's correct. Yeah. So um, I, I am on Patreon, um, uh, patreon.com slash my horror professional. And uh, for the first six months of my Patreon, we're donating all the um all the pledges to women's organizations that are fighting to grant women access to health care, which is really what what abortion is. And so for the first couple months, um, this is the fourth month. 
I haven't donated this month yet. We've done Planned Parenthood, the ACLU, and we did the Bridget the Bridget Alliance. That's B R I G I D, and what they do is they they help women get their abortion appointment. So if it's paying for like a taxi or or an Uber, or if it's uh, airplane tickets, or if it's childcare, all that sort of stuff. That's what they pay for, and so that's what we donated to a, a month ago. So that's what I'm about. Well, the first six months that we're doing that, just because my wife and I felt helpless living in Texas. This shit, this shit sucks, and so we wanted to give back in any way we could. And so that's that's something that's really very important to us. Cool as hell. That's fantastic. And thank you for sharing that with our listeners too. So they can find those organizations and also donate if they're able to. So thank you, Miguel. Of course. All right. So getting into to, to nunsploitation, we're going to start out with a, a brief history of nuns and kind of where we're going to be focusing. So nuns are women who are members of religious orders. There are lots of nuns in a variety of religions. But because of that, we're talking about non-exploitation films, we're really going to be talking about Christian slash Catholic nuns here, because virtually all of the non-exploitation movies are about those particular women. So before we get into the films, we're going to talk a little about nuns themselves and what makes them such a compelling target for exploitation and critique. The first order of nuns were the Benedictine Congregation in 1216 CE. The first place I see it in the literature really is Geoffrey Chaucer's subversive and hilarious The Canterbury Tales, which often there's a very good look at what a nun's life would have been like uh, 200 years after the first convent was founded. Around 1400 CE, that book was published. And he features two nuns with different stories to illustrate, two reasons. And obviously, anytime you say there's two reasons, the world is more complex than that. But there's mm-hmm. two main reasons, um, nuns, according to Chaucer. This is as was taught to me in 2009 in a college lit class. Um, so the first character is the prioress. Um, We'll see very familiar characters to these two, although some of the stuff is flipped in Benedetta. Um, But the prioress is the daughter of a wealthy person who doesn't want to marry. Uh, The prioress doesn't want to marry. The the wealthy person is probably married if he has a kid in uh, the 1400s. And she tells a, I don't know if you guys have read The Canterbury Tales, a horribly anti-Semitic story about a little boy who's this perfect Christian with this beautiful voice who is murdered by Jews who are portrayed as like very dirty. It's, it's very bad. The tale is bad. But Chaucer is kind of making fun of her by having her tell the story. He also has a couple lines about how like she has these lap dogs that she's feeding very opulently while there's starving people around them. And so it's this like mm-hmm. critique of that kind of nun. And so for other nuns, which is the second nun in the story, and she is a meek religious woman who seems to be like a tr- true believer. And she tells a story about a saint and it really stresses like the importance of chastity. Mm. So for some people, being a nun was to escape the pressures of the world. If your family could afford for you to escape those pressures, you wouldn't have to get married um, and you'd get to live like a life. And we see that in Benedetta, especially when he talks about like all the oranges he's donating for his daughters. Benedetta will be our, our second breakout film. That's why I keep referencing it. Mm. And the other nuns were the people who worked for those people and served them within the convent. So even in 1400, people are questioning the sanctity of nuns. And part of that is sexism. And part of that is that there's hypocrisy when you have like um, wealthy people taking part in religious orders where they supposedly have like a a vow of poverty and you see them Mm -hmm. and they have more than you have. It's like, wait, what's the vow about then? That question continues with convent pornography, which is exactly what it sounds like. It was extremely (laughs) popular in France during the Enlightenment and Philippines in the, ni- the Philippines in the 19th century, both places with uh, 
heavy religious hand at the time. So these are pictures and erotic writings that they aren't just porn, according to the, the arguments I've read. The act of drawing nuns, monks, and priests naked and fucking is a way of questioning power and ethics. And that's mm -hmm. the theory behind these drawings. So it's not like you just jerk off to it. It's like slowly uh -huh. undressing them from their like, honestly, their power of clothing and like what they hide behind. It's really cool. A, a lot of it is just simply like, the just curious nature of human beings and, and the horniness of dudes as well. But like, yeah. like when you put up a curtain or a wall or a door, people want to know what's behind it. So when you're like dressing yourself completely from head to toe and covering your head and, and all sorts of stuff, people are naturally curious. So I, I think that um, th that's part of it also just being the horny part of it as well. But you know, one thing I wanted to say is, uh, have you heard of the I'm, I'm probably pronouncing it incorrectly, but the Decameron or, or the Decameron. Yeah. 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 The, the Decameron. De Decameron. Yes. Yeah. So that was the 13th century written by Giovanni Boccaccio. And that actually had, a um, it was like a, a bunch of stories and a rap story around it. But some, some of the stories were about a, a young man pretending to be, either none or or something he he tricks his way into a convent mm -hmm. and then like he just looks at how how nuns live and then little by little that they start to fall in love with him and then like things go out of there so it's always it always leads there you know but yeah that yeah. I when i was researching this as well because i'm i was i'm really interested in the subgenre i i'm fascinated how how far back it goes you know ever since there have been women covering themselves up. There's been like this fascination with that, you know. And the Decameron was a big influence on the Canterbury Tales too. Right. It kind yeah. of all comes together. I think when we get to the history, one or two of the movies is adapted straight from the, the Decameron too. Mm -hmm. So in the U.S. and North America, um, which I'm going to be talking about, you know, a lot of these films are from Europe. I'm talking about it because it's my history. That's the history I, I know and can talk about with authority. Um, but so in North America, Ursuline nuns opened the first religious school, the Ursuline Academy in 1727, which is uh, to this day the oldest Catholic school in America. So nuns frequently worked in schools in some capacity, including Protestant nuns and other Christian missionaries in American Indian boarding schools, um, where many children went missing slash were murdered, sexually abused, and beyond all that had their culture erased in the name of progress and assimilation. So those are not a good part of American history. Um, I was living in Oklahoma for a while, and a lot of Native people lived there because of the end of the Trail of Tears. And if you talk to those people about the effects of these schools, um, some of the things that shocked me, those schools stopped in 1972. So it's not like distant, distant history. This is like, if you're like in your 40s now, your parents or your grandparents went, went to these schools. And that's had sweeping impacts on even like people who are like our age now. Um, who have either had their culture erased and had like to deal with the effects of like their grandparents slash parents being either abused or just not treated well and having their culture erased in, in these yeah. schools. And just to, like to add into that really quickly, <clears throat> just because there's some murkiness around when uh, residential schools ended, especially within North America as a whole, some of them were in operation until like the 90s, actually. Ah. Yeah, it's um officially in Canada. It wasn't until the 90s. In America, it's a bit murky. So I would want to double check my statement on that. But definitely in Canada, it was until the 90s. And a lot of the times people were in America and then were sent to like, because of residential land and where like landmarks were, 
and like land boundary lines were drawn up would be sent to like Canadian residential school, even if their family were like elsewhere. That's terrible. And, that, and they're actually still finding mass graves. Yes. They were found be- because they were killed during these, attending these schools. And the, the Pope just recently, within the last month or two, went there and apologized for the Catholic Church's role in in the in this stuff. So there's, yeah, there's there's a huge, um, there's a very long and sorted history of the Catholic Church and, and Native people. And also, like, just in my personal experience, I went to uh, Catholic school for the first eight years, first through eighth grade. Mm-hmm. And um, English was, or I'm sorry, Spanish was my first language. And I had it knocked out of me in school um, so that English, so that I would be speaking English. And so that they were doing that in the eighties, you know, like I was in school, well, through through grade. So like first grade was like, yeah, mid eighties. Um, so that, yeah, that's still happening, you know, fairly recently. Yeah. And it's interesting you bring that up because another thing that you'll see in the, just the history of American private schools, um, especially religious schools, a lot of them opened up in, in 1954 or directly after 1954. Any guesses as to why? There's a Supreme Court case from 1954. <laughs> oh, uh, is it Brown versus Board of Education? Yes. Um, so a lot of private schools open and, and nuns would work at these schools. And to be totally fair, um, it seems like the Catholic Church and a lot of those dioceses denied that they were doing it for uh, segregation purposes, where a lot of the Protestant churches were, were, were less apologetic about why they were doing it. And all of this isn't to say that like nuns are all terrible and all bad, but that there's things they did that were good. And there's things, a lot of things that they were bad. So like, I think these critiques in these, these films are very grounded in that because that duality is ignored in a lot of early films about nuns and they're presented as unambiguously good. Um, for example, uh, The Sound of Music from 1965 starred Julie Andrews a year after she played Mary Poppins. And she's almost magical. It's almost like she's playing Mary Poppins again, solving all of Von Trapp children's problems while escaping the Nazis. Um, so that's how film nuns were being portrayed in film outside of the exploitation movie, um, while all of this other stuff was happening in real life. And so in a lot of ways, the exploitation movement is an answer to these films that portrayed nuns as purely good. Um, during times of incredible social upheaval. The genre typically claims to be based on a true story takes place in a convent and features a ton of lesbian sex and nudity, often demonic possession as well. The first film that really falls into is Mother Joan of Angels from 1961 from Poland, um, followed by The Lady of Monza from Italy, 1969. But then in 1971, Ken Russell directed The Devils. We're gonna pause here for a second because I think that you cannot overstate how big the impact of The Devils is on this subgenre. Um, it was one of those movies that got like protested to hell and censored to hell. So like, it's still now difficult to find like a full cut of the devils that actually all looks the same. Mm-hmm. It has the infamous rape of Christ sequence. Miguel, have you seen this one? I think we talked about this on another podcast, didn't we? Yeah, I, I did see the devils and it is, uh, it is so amazing. Like um, just what the, what he did with this movie it's so good um it's so daring um because even to this day if you try to um come out against the catholic church you will be um picketed against and you will be um attacked like you know salmon rushdie uh, was very recently attacked because of his his book the, the satanic 
the satanic verses, you know. And so to do this like in 1971 and and have such yeah, it's amazing. If you haven't seen it, I, I would definitely recommend it. It's very good. I Cass, have you I told you the story of watching the devils when I was living with Chris? You haven't, but I've heard it through Chris's eyes when I was watching oh uh, Benedetta. And he just paused <laughs> and was explaining how one time I can tell I can tell the audience from his perspective. I would love to hear it from Chris's perspective. I've never heard it this way. I'm not gonna do a tendency and accent this time around. I'll try one another time. Then Chris can be insulted then. <laughs> Basically, he was coming home from somewhere with his then partner. And they stumble into the living room and you're looking up at a screen and there's a bunch of nuns having an orgy with crucifixes and screaming. Yeah. And then you looked up and go, it's not what you think. It's not porn. It's, <laughs> right. not, it's, not porn. it's not, it's really not. And Chris was like, cool, 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 man. Cool. And his partner was just like, I just said like deer in headlights was, look. <laughs> yeah, not happy with me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then that's how I know that you saw the devils. I still haven't. But I'm like, maybe I need to have my moment of watching it. And then Chris walks in again and he's just like, oh my God. <laughs> it was on Shutter for a while. I'm not sure it if was. it's still on there. Yeah, I, I know, saw I within the last couple of months on, on Shutter. That's how I was able to see it. I'll have to check it out. Yeah, because I know there's a lot of like chatter about like which cut of the version of it you see. So who knows what version we'll get to see in the future. But I'm excited to after all this, like talk about it. <laughs> so that scene that's called the Rape of Christ uh, with all the nuns going on the, there's a giant crucifix and they're like putting mm-hmm. themselves on his fingers and stuff and going on his face. But so that scene is really what I would argue inspires a lot of the, the future exploitation films um, because people were incensed, but they're also horny. Like they wanted to see it. It was cut from everywhere. Um, reels were destroyed. And so people tried to recreate it. And so we got a ton of movies just bursting out right after. So there's the Demons from France in 1972, which is the first film from prolific soft course, last exploitation filmmaker. Jesus Franco. Then Our Lady of Lust came out and from Italy in 1972. Um, the story of a cloistered nun and the nun and the devil were both directed by Domenico Palella in Italy in 1973. So he directed two in one year. That's how popular and hot the, this topic was. Um, Flavia the Heretic came out in 1974. School of the Holy Beast came out in Japan in 1974. And it's definitely worth noting that there is a, a non-sploitation boom in Japan as well as in Europe, because despite not having, so Japan's different because they didn't really ever have an era of Christian rule. So in Japan, non-sploitation films are a religious minority rather than a religious majority. So it's like a different, interesting flip on it. Then 1974, we had the Sinful Nun of St. Valentine by Sergio Greco, the Castro's Abbess in 1974 by Armando Crispino, and then Satanico Pandemonium in 1975 from Mexico. And I know, Miguel, you love this movie and you have a great podcast episode about it with uh, Anthony Jerome M. Yeah. So this was, yeah, 75. And so um, when I, when I was talking to Anthony about what movie to watch, I was like, I really want to, the seventies is about like, being risky and taking chances and, and, um, and uh, not being comfortable when you're watching something. And so I was like, we could have done like Jaws this, this year or like Satanical Pandemonium. And I was like, we do Satanical Pandemonium and we absolutely loved it. It's the first time he'd watched any kind of non-sploitation movie. And we just, it just hit all of like, checked all of our boxes, you know? Uh, so it was made in Mexico and I love 
finding movies that were made in Mexico, um, the Mexican horror film, because because Mexico and Latin America is so um, deeply rooted with Christian culture, you don't get a lot of horror movies from like there there's definitely movies there but not as many as like in america or just other parts of the world and i think it's because of that and so when you get this mexican movie and then it has the balls to go uh, against the catholic church like it's like oh wow this makes you stand up and pay attention and um it's just it's just like a great movie that nobody talks about and obviously, everybody knows Satanical Pandemonium because of From Dusk Till Dawn. That yeah. was Sama Hayek's character. That was her name and that. And that's where Quentin Tarantino got the name from. So, like, people are aware of the name, but they don't really know the movie. And so I definitely recommend this one. Because I was raised Catholic, I'm no longer Catholic. I'm an atheist now. I, I have this fascination with everything, like, nuns and the church and the devil. and But... Yeah, so it really um, checked all the boxes in that one. Excellent. Um, also in 1975, we had Carta, which we are going to swing back and talk about for a while. It's our first breakout film. Um, we also had in 1976, The Cloistered Nun, Runa's Confession. That was a Japanese one. Love Letters of a Portuguese Nun by Jesus Franco, which gets remade. Uh, it was made in 1976. It's remade two years later as Love Letters of a Nun. In between, Sister Emmanuel comes out in 1977. Killer Nun in 1978. The Last House on the Beach, also Italian, 1978. Nun, Secret, Japanese, 1978. Sister Lucia's Dishonor, also Japanese, also 1978. They call her Cleopatra Wong uh, from the Philippines in 1978, which Quentin Tarantino has called out as a huge influence on his work. Um, Behind the Convent Walls, Italy, 1978. Malimbimba, um, 1979, Images of a Convent, 1979, The Other Hell, Bruno Mattei, 1980. He also directed The True Story of the Nun of Monza in 1980. In 1983, Dark Habits comes out in Spain. It's the third film by legendary Spanish filmmaker Pedro Almodovar. Convent of Sinners comes out in 1986. And you see they're all kind of tapering off now. Once we get into the 80s, there's really not a ton of nunsploitation anymore. Nuns on the Run came out in 1990 in the UK. Electric Bible Sister Hunting came out in 92 in Japan, Dark Waters in 94, Sacred Flesh in 99. Um, for more of that era, the Grindhouse Database recommends this book uh, Steve by Steve Fentone, Antichristo, The Bible of Nasty Nun Cinema and Culture. That came out in 2000. And really, there wasn't very much non-exploitation at all in that decade. Um, so we kind of come back in with Bad Habits in 2009, none of that in 2009, with the incredible tagline, A Blast for You and A Blast for Me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and then exploitation kind of gets picked up again because of Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez's Grindhouse. And in 2010, Robert Rodriguez makes Machete with at least a portion of, of a non-exploitation film as part of it with Lindsay Lohan. And then Naked Nuns with Big Guns by Joseph Guzman in 2010. Just an incredible title. And then they start getting like more like uh, artsy remakes the little hours came out in 2017 which is an adaptation of the camera which we we're talking about a little earlier featuring aubrey plaza and fred armison among a really loaded cast mm -hmm. um, saint agatha 2018 came out that's uh, from saw series regular director darren lynn bosman nuns an italian horror story in 2020 agnes also came out in 2021 from mickey reese and our second breakout film benedetta by paul verhoven i was just gonna say that i i take um 
I'm a little insulted that you didn't uh, say Sister Act one and two. Oh. Would those be non exploitation though? I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I just wanted to say know. Sister Act one and two. But I feel like we could argue, argue it. I mean, yeah. Because if all these films are like. They're great. I have no issue with Sister Act. I just, I feel like it's a different genre because it doesn't have the, the satanic possession. It doesn't have, I mean, I feel like there's sexual tension, but there's not like. Yeah, the Virgin Mary falling on you and you licking the titty kind of <laughs> kind of stuff in there. All right, Ryan. What I'm going to say is I'm going to complete. I'm going to keep going with this podcast, but it's going to be under duress. Okay, it's <laughs> under like, protest for sure. I'm sorry, we, oh, we just add them. What <laughs> years? Oh, it also it technically doesn't. I think I don't think it fits the definition that we're going under for this podcast. But Saint Maud is super close. To yes, that, that's right? what I was going to mention. Yeah, because there's lesbian tensions. There's like this like fetishization of Jesus, you know, we're like, no, we don't have any like masturbation with crucifixes, but there is definitely like this, like obsession with purity. So I would, I would add that as a contender, I think. I, I thought about that one. Um, yeah. And y'all are making good points. I, I left it <laughs> off because in my mind, because Maud is not part of a religious order. Yeah. She's mm-hmm. not like, it's missing the critique yeah. of religious order. She's like someone off on her own doing her own thing. Th- this genre is real essential nature is a critique of the the forces of power um often the forces of powers that are stopping women from fucking other women when they want to which is fucked up but it's just critiquing those powers and kind of like pointing out like the lesbian sex is natural the the weird compulsion to stop it is unnatural mm. saint maud is critiquing like the individual's connection to jesus not necessarily the like system yeah. that's encouraging people to act a certain way Exactly. So like, if you guys were like, this is very important. We need to have St. Maud, like absolutely include it. Um, well, I'm I would not. say that about Sister Act. So I, I get Sister Act, Cass could say Maud and we're yes. all happy. All right. We're, we're good. We're, we're in. Everything's in. <laughs> well, well, I mean, if you got Sound of Music in there. That's true. But, but that one wasn't part of the list. That was like, this is a response to. I got you. Okay. Yeah. okay right. I'm watching you. I'm watching you. Right. I'm just... <laughs> Well, this brings us to 1977's Alicarta, directed by, directed and co-written by Juan Lopez Moctezuma. And quick synopsis, it's an English language film set in Mexico around like the 1860s and set around two orphaned women, Alicarta and Justine. They're living in a convent. Uh, they discover a satanic force in the crypt that's keeping Alicarta's mother's skeleton. Unbeknownst to her, she doesn't really quite know that's her mom's skeleton <laughs> and unleashes this havoc in the convent and in the world. And things get worse and worse and worse the more that Ali Carter and Justine start expressing their feelings towards each other. So before I delve into any like fun facts and tidbits, I would love to hear both of your memories and reactions with the first time you saw Ali Carter. This is my first time watching it. The first hour I did not like. I felt like it was like very fast paced and yet nothing was happening like they like they met and became best friends on like it seemed like five minutes of film where they just like we met we're mm-hmm. best friends let's kiss in this graveyard <laughs> but it seemed fast but it seemed like we could have just started with them kissing the graveyard and i would have been there mm-hmm. um, but then we got to the end and i loved the last just like absolutely bonkers She's shooting flamethrowers out of her eyes 30 minutes. I thought that was cool 
was shit and I really enjoyed it. The first hour I felt like was, uh, it didn't feel like it was well put together. Whereas the mm-hmm. last half hour, I was just super into it. I loved it. I, I totally see that. I can, I can see why you wouldn't like that first half. For me, it's like, low budget filmmaking you yeah. know they didn't and also like the storytelling isn't the, the greatest but i'm here for the whole experience and mm. the whole experience of like watching like this they weren't none were they working to be nuns i'm not quite sure if they were actually nuns yet but like yeah. watching like alucarda which we have to address the elephant in the room that we all know that alucarda is dracula spelled backwards with an extra <laughs> I did not I did not cl- 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 that. Uh, sorry, okay. I did not check that. I thought yes, that makes yeah. sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I I was here for it. Like I watched it the first time maybe two or three years ago. And it feels like when you discover it, because this isn't a mainstream movie and nobody mm-hmm. not a lot of people talk about it. It feels like you're discovering something. It feels like you're discovering one of the secrets, like Alicardo was talking about at the beginning of the movie. And so, like, this is your own personal secret. And it's like, wow, like, I've uncovered this movie that not a lot of people talk about. And it it just feels like one of those things as a horror collector, I like, I collect experiences and I collect. So I don't go back and rewatch movies, right? So I, I watch mm-hmm. one movie once and then I go on and move on. So this is, I just love, like, discovering this precious little gem and putting it in my pocket of like, I feel like Golem right now, the the precious. Um, But yeah, it's just, I I just feel, I love the experience of when I watched it because uh, I I rented it at a movie at a rental shop here in Austin. That's since closed. And um, like, I just watch it by myself and nope. When I asked my friends about it, they hadn't seen it. So I was really in for, for the experience of it. Yeah. And I think uh, <laughs> this was my first time watching it and I was watching it on, we have this like kind of enclosed balcony in our apartment building. And it's worth noting that I live in an apartment building that's like 80% with elders. <laughs> and I had the volume on high while I was watching it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of screaming in this there's movie. a lot of screaming yeah. there's there's a lot of screaming i also think there's something um yeah so that that was a factor at play where i actually kind of loved that that was happening because it felt like like i felt dirty watching it and then i was like yes having to yes. deal with my feeling of feeling that because i'm like oh someone is hearing me watch these things and making these conclusions about why or, or what i'm doing with this film and then i'm starting to think that way and i'm like oh i think this is like really what exploitation film is trying to get at like where this where these levels of shame or like dirtiness comes from and like the need to be like to clarify or be like this is why I'm watching this and it's like well do you even have to and I was like oh I love that I love that feeling and I I've never been a huge exploitation film but I feel like this is maybe a possible like gateway drug for me to be like oh I see that a lot of like interesting questions can come out of it so I was so happy that we're doing this film <laughs> I'm glad to hear that one thing that I wanted to point out is the exploitation part of non-exploitation is that the majority of these movies were written and directed and produced by men yeah. and they're trying to tell the story of of these women in these convents and stuff like that and you know they, they a lot of times instead of like feeling and emotions, they'll go for the, the, the chest shot, the, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's the exploitation part of it. But if you take that out or just set it aside, there's, they're actually, they're being transgressive and they're talking against the Roman Catholic church or, or religion in general. And that's one of the things that I really love about Alucarda. 
And we'll talk about it in a second. So I'm really excited to unpack the queerness of the song. So I think that it's interesting how it's used in the time period, but then rewatching it now, I feel like you can get a different message than maybe it was intended. I mean, at its heart, it is just another retelling of Carmilla as like a lesbian vampire story. This film is one of Del Toro's favorite films. And one of my fun facts about this film is that Claudio Brook, who plays the doctor in this film, later appeared in Del Toro's first feature film, Kronos, which I thought is great. Like imagine just being like, this is one of my favorite films. And like decades later, one of the actors in it is in your movie. Like what a a win for Del Toro. (laughs) Can I just say one thing? Like maybe spoiler alert, 20 seconds, 23 (laughs) Mm -hmm. seconds if you haven't seen uh, Kronos. I had only seen a trailer for it and I went into it not even realizing. No, I didn't even see a trailer. Sorry. Not even realizing it was a vampire movie. Mm-hmm. And so when it turned out that it was a vampire movie, it was like, I was like, holy shit, it's amazing. And so I, I, I didn't put it together that Claudio Brook was in this one and also Kronos. That's really cool. Yeah. it's it's. I love that what happens like when films just naturally speak to each other. Um, man, we should do Kronos sometime. If you ever want to come back and talk about Kronos, we'd love that. I will. I definitely will. (laughs) Awesome. So I feel like when it was made, it seems as if queerness is being used as like the monster and like this traditional sense of like, we know that these women are being corrupted because now look at these like feelings they have for each other, this like longing that they have for each other. And the more and more evil, quote unquote evil they get or influenced by Satan that they get, the more they start to like literally undress around each other, uh, be stripped of their sanity. It kind of goes on, goes on, goes on. But what I thought was really interesting watching it now, like in 2022, is that it feels like unintentionally, it's a great way to preserve how queerness had been viewed and watching it, and sometimes still is now, but watching it now, you can see like how sad it is that like, why couldn't Alucarda and Justine just have like a relationship? And why did it take them like making this like blood pack and like having to like call on Satan to like keep their bonds of love together? Like there's just one part in the film I really love where he, where I believe it's Arlie Carter is just saying like, she is talking back to the priest so hardcore and she's just like, you live for death and I live for life. <laughs> and I was just like, that's a great way to put it, Arlie Carter. Thank you. Uh, so I would love to hear what you both think about how this film tackled this queerness and how maybe decades later it kind of hits differently at least it did for me as a queer viewer where I'm like rooting for Ellie Carter and Justine and I'm seeing obviously the evil the evil is like the church trying to suppress them and and put them through pain and suffering that just makes everything worse Um, but I would love to hear both of your feelings about that so there's this one line in Benedetta that like shook me to my core for how funny it was and uh and we get to it obviously when we're talking about it but um they're accusing uh, them of having lust for each other like two women having lust for each other mm-hmm. and one one of the priests says women can't lust after other women you know it's, it's like it's so like not a thought in their head mm-hmm. and so when we we bring it to this movie um just like them like two women just wanting to be together is a mortal sin like in their eyes in the eyes of the church and all that and it's uh, it's so fucked up that, like you were saying, their love led to, I mean, if you think about it, maybe that's not the best way. I don't think they were trying to say that like two women um, that love each other will eventually be led to, to the devil. I'm, I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm thinking that's what they were, what they were trying to say, or maybe they were, I don't know. Um, I think 
now I'm confused. That's <laughs> no. <laughs> why we get to chat about it. Yeah. It's yeah. Like, it's like if they didn't stumble into that crypt, like would things have unspooled in the same way? Like was Satan the excuse and they would have been punished and like bloodlets for being possessed? Uh, I guess we don't know because it's not in the film, but it's fun just to think about. So I guess I mean, one question would be, I, they, 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 they stumble into the crypt and that's half the equation. They're also vulnerable. So I think the question is like, are they vulnerable because the church has put them out of their protect its protection because of their their love for one another? Or are they vulnerable because they put themselves out of the church's protection? And I don't know if the film has enough in it to make that distinction, like who put them out of the church's protection. Maybe the most that we get around that is the fact that they're both orphans. It's implied that they don't have any other kind of wealth. So this is that's this is their only option is like live here, you're fed, you're clothed, but you have to be like pious and if you don't live by these rules, you're cast out. So I guess in that light, like it's suggestive that they didn't have another course of action, but yeah, there, I think the film doesn't go too much into that. So this movie doesn't have the finesse that a movie like Benedetta has, Yeah, you know? And so the, this is more rough around the edges when it comes to the themes and stuff. Whereas when we get to Benedetta, you can tell like it's been refined. It's gone through some script rewrites and it's Mm -hmm. coming from, people who maybe even an older person because uh Verhoeven is is you know late in the later stages of his stages of his life and so have mm-hmm. had more of an opportunity to like experience life whereas like uh yeah Alicarda is very still rough around the edges um yeah. very much giving like higher end film school movie yeah, yeah. no I I mm-hmm. agree with that one thing I will say that I love about this era especially um with like vampire moves of this era too is just how blood is done like i love how it looks like paint like and it's just <laughs> splashes and it's like dripping everywhere and it's clear like we know like similar to like something like the spirit right like we understand that's not like what blood looks like but there's something about the like and yes also budget factors into these reasons of why like maybe they're actually literally using paint <laughs> but it it does have this weird like uh, like stage like quality that i just think is so cool and this, and something that i think in like modern films like when blood looks more and more realistic it like there's like a i guess fin- another kind of finesse to it that i can't quite put my finger on but i just love i love seeing it i love it looking like splatter and like not real so I, I love that as well. I love like the, it's campy, it's campy, and it's for me. I don't want to say I'm not sure how you feel, but for me, it takes the scare factor out of it for me because it's like this mm-hmm. is so obviously fake. I'm just I'm not really scared about it. I'm more interested in what's happening and I'm focusing on the story as opposed to be like having to deal with my emotions of, oh my god, that's a ton of blood, you know? Yeah. yeah. I did feel like on the same line, like Justine's death struck me as very funny as when it was happening. Not like that she was being tortured, mm. but that mm-hmm. like she got pricked four times by a needle smaller than my finger. And, and now she is dead. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, well, yeah, I was going to ask you which death because she died. She died twice the, there. The, the, first, yeah, yeah. the second death was way more conclusive. <laughs> What I wanted to ask you guys how you felt about the, the nudity and how it was used in the movie, because for me, yes, there is nudity and it is exploitive to, to an extent, but it feels different than like the 80s movies where you just like you just have female nudity for no reason. Like, you know, just they're just, uh, um, you know, taking a shower or they're swimming or whatever. There's always a reason mm-hmm. for them to be swimming in a lake. 
Whereas here, the, the, like I think Ryan, you said that they were they had to get them in a in a state of being unsafe, or you know, like you feel safest when you're in a, in your clothes, right? So when you take off your clothes, you are exposing yourself to to the world and to your environment. And so I think, like in this movie. I don't know. It, did, it didn't feel as pornographic to me as sometimes some movies in the 80s could be. That's a good point. I think there's a lot of, I think in your head, at least in my head, I have to sex, uh, separate between non-sexual and sexual nudity. Mm, I think like point. when Satan comes, you're making a deal and you're naked. It's like, nobody's going to fuck now. This isn't sexy. And there's like them hooking up and it's like, okay, this is, I like this, you know? I think it has a lot to do with like how the film was Splice together or edited I guess one of my favorite scenes was like when there is the orgy which I knew before going in that there was an orgy scene so I was like very excited to see how they would tackle it on film but it's like <laughs> shot for shot compared to like the nuns in their habit like you see all these like clothed nuns and they'll go to like the orgy and everyone's like naked and fondling each other and like people are physically I guess it's Satan is like physically pressing people into each other I thought that was just like for its time like poetic actually because it's just showing like two different ways of being and like structures of being and it's doing all that by just showing like an orgy next to like a like a convent of nuns so I thought that it was selective and when it showed nudity and when it came to like Ali Carter and Justine what didn't happen which I was like which I am a fan of was there wasn't too much of a male gaze element like I feel like the nudity was tender than I thought it would be and it had more to do with like their blood pact and their connection to each other but it didn't even try to tackle like the pleasure element. Like it doesn't feel erotic. So I feel like that's where you can seep into some of the eighties territory of like, okay, if this is going to be an erotic scene, like are we showing like pleasure given pleasure gained and how are we showing that and who is this for? And I didn't ask any of those questions. So I think it was really well done. That's exactly what I was going for. The male gaze that you, exactly. Yeah. Oh, I wanted to mention how I liked that they actually showed flogging because that was one of the most terrifying things in the film because that's something that nuns, what I know, still do and definitely did in the past. There's just one podcast episode of Getting Curious with Jonathan Van Ness that I listened to. And it was so interesting because it was like two ex-nuns who like left the convent and they just went into such detail about how like they're taught suffering brings you closer to God and like how after doing certain acts, like even on a good day, they would be like conditioned to go to their rooms and take like old branches and leaves and like physically hit themselves as a sign of like being more pious and like not getting too comfortable with feeling like content. Like if they were ever too comfortable, that was a sign that they were veering into like gluttony or another sin. So I liked that, like as much as it seemed very theatrical and like definitely campy, like Miguel was saying, that it had that in there because that's something that like is such a part of non-culture that is so fucked up and it's so not okay and horrific in its own right. That to me is scarier than like the orgy where like people are just having a good time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. The other note I had is I thought it was actually kind of funny how like Justine is like dead for five minutes and Ali Carter's already like Daniela. <laughs> like she gets over her so quickly. <laughs> and I mean, I think that's their whole Kimia like Crimea vibe they're going to like to make her the seductress and whatnot. It just made me laugh how quickly she was like, Daniela, you're mine now. And I was like, that took five seconds. I'm so sorry, Justine. <laughs> yeah, I I was noticing that as well. And I and I thought she's just a user and she yeah. was going to use Daniela in order to get out of the house and also like later on use her against her her doctor father who turned on a dime. 
Okay. He was he was science, 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 and mm-hmm. then boom, she's a witch, killer. You know, that sort of thing. You know, it was crazy. I love that part. Yeah, so it was really funny too. It's just like, oh, my daughter's in trouble. I guess now I believe in God. <laughs> You're like, <laughs> oh, rude. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> my favorite line in this film was, you don't know how jealous I am. You must love me to death. Fantastic, Elliot Carter. And I love how she has, <laughs> we talk a lot about how like horror villains have, like not us on this podcast, but in general, like, but like the scariest, like disturbing faces of horror villains, like the, the way that Elliot Carter does not blink and does not break eye contact. It does this thing where it goes from like, I'm confused to now it's funny and campy. And now I'm actually a little disturbed. And she like, just keeps such serious, like eye locks all the time. And I love, so I just wanted to shout that out. (laughs) The the actress who played Elliot Carter did an amazing job. I mean, and this definitely, so this came out after Carrie, right? Or maybe a year after Carrie or maybe possibly. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. I didn't think about that, but yeah. But it has elements of Carrie in it. Yeah. So it came out in seven, Carrie was 76 and this was 77. And so who knows if uh, they, they, because the ending of this is very similar to the ending in, um, in Carrie. And I love there's one part at the end there where like the um, fathers or the monks are throwing um, holy water at her and she just puts up her hand and like fire comes out and just blocks it. I'm like, Oh fuck. That's so sick. You know? Yeah, that whole closing scene was so cool. What Miguel said earlier about 70s films having like no safe element, Mm. I feel like this ending was very much like that. I don't think it was very much set up that that Alucarda could could like, I don't know how she was summoning fire through her hands, her (laughs) eyes, her mouth, whatever. We didn't know she could do that. But I was real fucking happy when she burnt like half the people, you know, like that was very cool to see. I guess it was an hour and 15 minutes. There's like 45 minutes where there was like mild supernatural elements. And then it just all went crazy in the last half hour. And I kind of just like, I love movies with that kind of just insane ending where like, it's just like a kitchen sink ending, even though it wasn't a kitchen sink movie. I like the idea that they knew there was this like big finale and that because of that, the like gore, the like killing, all the like horror elements are parsed down for the most part, although they're definitely there, but they save it for like the ending. And it's like almost, you can feel it. You can feel it building. And then you're like, oh, it's like, we're just exploding with tension. Now I still keep thinking about Allard Carter and like Carrie team up now. Like, <laughs> like <laughs> I have questions. My brain is just like drifting off. I'm like, what would that look like? No prom is safe. They just what? go from prom to prom. Hell yeah. I am struck with the so much like religious imagery in this mm. movie, like could make for such great art, like still photography or posters or whatever. And the one scene specifically I'm thinking about, or the one shot I'm thinking about is um, when they're finally like giving themselves over to the devil. And there's the, that orgy. And right before that, there's a scene where, or the shot of Alucarda and Justine on either side of the screen and then in the middle is Satan, but he looks like uh, he's got the goat. Is that, would it just be Beelzebub or something like that with the, with the goat head? Like that imagery is like burned into my mind of like classic, iconic horror movie shots. You know, um, I, I absolutely love it. Some of the shots that are, are in it, especially the um, where they hold mass and behind the altar, there's the, the the big Jesus and then just like slightly different Jesuses all around. That 
is amazing set design for such a slow for, for such a low budget and then and there's candles all around it and then one of the monks gets set on fire by alucard at the end and like he just happens to stumble over there and set the whole <laughs> set piece on fire you know ah it's so it's you know it's so good what this lacks in acting or maybe some of the story the setup it totally makes up for in the cinematography and the, the the other aspects of it that that I really, for me anyway, that I really like. So before we go on to Benedetta, Ryan or Miguel, do you have any lingering thoughts about Alucarda? I have a couple. One, I think the the devil's French accent is hysterical, and just the <laughs> idea like the devil is French just <laughs> makes me laugh. Um, it's one of those. Those things just just send me, you know. I was surprised to hear it was a Carmilla adaptation because mm. I felt like. Did you all think is Alucarda a vampire or is she possessed by Satan? I yeah, I think they're they were mixing it up a little bit there because it's both. Uh, well, she's definitely possessed by the devil, right? But at the very end, there she kills one of the nuns by biting her in the neck, and so right, that's the yeah. only uh, part of vampirism that we get in this movie and honestly i could do without it like i don't need it like i'm cool with just the devil part i'm cool with just the witch part of it but yeah there is that little aspect of it so justine's definitely a vampire and alucard is not and i i feel like it's a stretch to say it's a carmia adaptation only because mm-hmm. the only element it kept is that one of them is a vampire and th- that they're they're lesbians it just felt like didn't yeah. feel like any part of the actual story was in there beyond I mean, like the very basic elements. I think it has to, I think that it is a stretch. I think it's, I did, I do think that it was them doing like, like a remix version, but yeah. I think that it's, it does have some weight. The fact that like Ali Card is the one to convince Justine to like come to her forever in life and death and that they will abolish death by being together. And that like, when they're officially like, I guess, signing, signing themselves over to say, and it's through drinking each other's blood. Yeah. Cause so in that light, we do see Ali Carter drinking blood, but it seems like she's the one that has more control in the relationship too. I never thought of it too hard before now, but I'm now wondering if like, she does have some sort of like glamoring abilities because Justine and mm-hmm. Daniela, like you said, all of a sudden are just like on her side. So I guess you could see that like, she has some sort of like vampiric talents, but it's probably a little stretch. <laughs> Well, one of the things that we didn't talk about is at the very beginning when her when uh, Alucarda is born and her mother passes away, she she tells a stranger to take Alucarda before he can get to her, mm-hmm. and so I'm be- I believe that she might have been a witch or might have given her soul to the devil already, and that was Alucarda mm-hmm. was the devil's child, mm-hmm. and then so when she's growing up, she's gonna have like you know, some way to like have people like follow her. And yeah, I think there was, there, there was an aspect of that. If they want to see it's vampires, it doesn't go right ahead. But, you know, <laughs> one other thing that I, I wanted to mention that it's not specifically about this movie, but I, I try to champion like people watching Mexican horror films. Mm. Um, and so uh, I would say if you like this movie, if you, if you're interested in watching other Mexican horror movies, there's like the uh, El Esqueleto de la Señora Morales, which translates to Skeleton of Mrs. Morales, which is a black and white film from 1960. Everybody that I mentioned it to and watches it uh, absolutely loves it. It's like a horror comedy. It's very dark. So I'd recommend that one. And then like, there's another one. I'm trying to remember the English name of it. Um, in Spanish, it's called Veneno para las Hadas, Poison for the Fairies. 
And this is another, this is about like two, like 10 year old girls at a, not a convent, but like a, a school. And it also deals with like witchcraft and all that. So I'd recommend that as well. Like I, I'm always like championing watching Mexican horror movies. Uh, and if you have some, please let me know because uh, I'm always looking for, for some new stuff. Miguel, do you have a list of that written out somewhere? I uh, love Mexican stuff. My grandfather's Mexican. I'm trying to like connect with the, my culture. Like, yeah. It's weird to say my culture, um, <laughs> but if you had a list, I would like very, very much love to watch all those movies. And I don't have a list, but I would certainly type one up for you. Yeah. That would be awesome. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate you. No problem. Well, Miguel and Cass, y'all won me over. I was <laughs> super into it after talking to you guys about it. Uh, I, I'm one over. I'm going to tell people I like this movie next time I talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so Benedetta came out last year, uh, directed by Paul Verhoeven, who also directed Robocop, Starship Troopers, Basic Instinct, Showgirls, among many others. So very. Can we talk about that lineup? I'm like, Jesus <laughs> Christ, you know, that's amazing. I can't believe you did Showgirls. I was like, how did I not know that? <laughs> So yeah. I watched, I made the mistake of watching this with my wife. She's not a horror fan and it was a mistake at certain <laughs> scenes. But at the end, after I was telling her like about the director and I was telling her who, what he directed, she's like, what the fuck? Right. RoboCop, Starship Troopers. I mean, I haven't seen Showgirls. I know like people have come around to it now and it's like genius. So I definitely need to watch it. Oh, I just know it as like one of my coming out films. That's how I know. <laughs> okay. All right. But it's not, it is, it is good. It's very good. I also haven't seen it. Cass, would it be accurate to say that Benedetta is kind of like the satire from Robocop and Starship Troopers meets Showgirls? Or would that just be <laughs> a wild thing to say? Uh, I think I would need to sit on that sentence a bit longer. <laughs> but you know what? If that is your truth, Ryan, it's go for it. <laughs> I, mean, I haven't seen Showgirls. So it's definitely not it's like anybody's <laughs> truth. I mean, maybe it's someone else's truth. But I have to see Showgirls for it to be mine. I will say my favorite like uh, Showgirls tidbit is like, so for a lot of it, Elizabeth Berkley, who plays Nomi Malone, is topless. And there's a lot of sex scenes and stuff. Callum uh, McLaughlin is in it. Fantastic. This one time, Elizabeth Berkeley was like on a plane and somebody was watching Showgirls right next to her and didn't recognize that it was her. <laughs> she just and he apparently was just like oblivious and was just like going about his day and she just had to like watch somebody else watch her naked wow. on the screen and i was like talk about exploitation films like imagine that moment like you recognize my boobies but you don't recognize my face that's pretty meta also what a weird movie to watch in a plane right i know i would i don't i don't i would not yeah <laughs> anyways okay please I had one really embarrassing airport moment i really like the movie don't look now have you all seen it I, no, but I know of it. Yeah, I'm actually, it's it's next week's episode. On, oh, nice. On professional, yeah. I'm excited to hear that. Um, I watched Don't Look Now in an airport with my wife with like a shared headphone. And I had completely forgotten that it opens with like a 10 to 15 minute sex <laughs> scene. <laughs> it's right at the airport in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And it was not the place. It was not the place. It was not the time to watch that movie with one headphone in each or split in headphones. <laughs> Probably not the best for that. Um, so, but Benedetta, I'm going to give you all a quick synopsis, then we'll get into the movie. It is the story of Benedetta, who is a young, rich girl who may or may not have a connection with the Virgin Mary. Her parents bribe her way into a convent where a statue of the Virgin falls on her nipple first, as statues tend to fall. <laughs> From there, we fast forward to her as an adult, and she's still having visions 
of what may or may not be Jesus, which is one of the film's central questions. Are her visions a real religious experience or are they from taking opium for your pain or uh, schizophrenia or some other mental illness? Bartolomea comes in and she is a young poor woman who runs to the convent to escape her father and brother's abuse. And Benedetta's visiting father pays for Bartolomea to enter the convent. And the two hook up almost immediately. There's like, there's no wait. Benedetta has this self-loathing slash Catholic church inspired loathing that inspires, that leads her to torture Bartolomea between hookups. And Benedetta's visions keep coming and a plague is sweeping across the land. And the movie kind of goes from there. So you got those three elements kind of cooking together. So uh, it's from a skift by Verhoeven um, along with David Burke and with contributions from Pascal Bonitzer. Um, but it's based on the book Immodest Acts, The Life of a Lesbian Nun in Renaissance Italy by Dr. Judith C. Brown. This is all based in fact. And we'll get more into that in a, a minute. So my first question every time, how'd y'all like it? I'm looking forward to be one over because... I started off this movie really being intrigued, didn't really realize I should have, but I didn't assume or realize there's going to be like some gay overtones and all kinds of gay tones, <laughs> but then I ended up not liking it. So when uh, Ryan, uh, when we were talking about coming onto the show, you know, I was interested in, in watching an older non-exploitation movie and a new one that I hadn't seen. And so like Benedetta, when I suggested it, I hadn't seen it yet, but you know, I understood the, it was directed by Verhoeven and all that sort of stuff. So when I got into it, I hadn't even seen a trailer. I just, I don't like watch trailers. I just get into it and I enjoyed it. I'll say I enjoyed it a lot. I think I liked it a lot. And I think like, like I was saying, this is like the smarter, this is barely a horror movie, or maybe it's not even a horror movie. It's more drama with, with some horrific elements you know, which was kind of surprising to me. And typically when that, when that happens, I'm like, oh, I, I was ex- expecting a horror movie and I wanted, didn't enjoy it, but I, I don't know. I liked it. I agree with you. I wouldn't say smarter. I would say more polished. I think this is like a very polished movie where Alucarda is good, but it doesn't have a ton of polish. So one of the first things I noticed about non-exploitation as we watch them, they often claim to be based on true stories, but we kind of all know how that goes. Like, is this movie Texas Chainsaw Massacre based on a true story, <sighs> i.e. almost not at all, or like Lincoln based on a true story? So I looked up some of the stuff about Benedetta. So according to Chase Hutchinson at Collider, many aspects of the films are based on historical records. He doesn't note this, but so a lot of the historical records from that time, according to the him in the New York Times article where he, he was getting this from, were based from inquisitions and trials within the convent, which you got to think about like, we all, all watch the pair of anguish scenes. So we understand how those confessions are got. So who knows how accurate those records actually are. I think like under the Bush administration, we definitely got a lot of like understanding that like you can torture someone enough that they'll say anything. Mm-hmm. That's something to think about. But there was a real person, Benedetta Carlini, who was unknown in a convent and claimed to have visions. Although those records that we're just talking about show that people at the convent thought she was lying and the, the rumor was, or the, the records show, according to them at least, that she made her own stigmata with, with glass. Like the, so the biggest inconsistency for the film to real life is the timing of the plague, which Benedetta predicted in 1619, and it actually came in 1631. There's also no record of the Virgin Mary dildo that Bartholomea carved. But interestingly, Benedetta is one of the earliest 
lesbians to have a written record of herself in, in human history. Though I'm sure there have been lesbians basically since there, there's been humans, um, that's the way humans work. Uh, so given that information, are there things you all wished had been more accurate for the sake of facts? And are there things you wish would have been less accurate for the sake of the story? That's an excellent question. I think for me, I would like the relationship between Benedetta and Bartolomea. I would like that to, to be true. I don't really care about it otherwise being true or not. I didn't watch it for, I didn't read the book, so I don't, I'm not really, really close to the source material. I, I'm not a believer, so I don't believe anything either. So I'm, I'm really just like here watching fictionalized telling of something. Yeah, I think this kind of bleeds into something that I'll talk about a bit more in depth later after uh, Ryan takes us through his tour of Benedetta. But for me, I think I, I don't know if we needed the basement on a true story intro at all. I think it's perfectly fine to make a work inspired by something that intrigues the creator and has elements of truth, has elements of fiction, and the film delivers its own message about whatever it's trying to deliver. Because I think for this one, I ended up getting a bit too distracted on how and how it seemed to not be totally a satire because it was trying so hard to be a period piece drama of the time period. It was like satirizing. And I just wish that it kind of leaned more into just being a satire and having visions and being bonkers. So the elements of truth are not like almost in a way doesn't matter. And I think that's where, yeah, I'll stop there. But I think it, I think that's why it didn't really work for me. The other thing before we get into the the film itself, have you all read anything about the protests? <laughs> I did only because I know Ryan loves protests. <laughs> yeah. So I, I did not know. I love when people get real mad about movies and books and art. I feel like it means the art is working. It's hitting mm -hmm. a nerve, you know, like people aren't protesting art that's not speaking to them in some way that makes them uncomfortable. So I, I'm into that. I'm less into the, the book bands that are sweeping across the country right now. because I don't think the people who are doing those bands have read the books. Mm -hmm. But if those people had read the books and wanted to talk about them, I would... I think that would be great. I just think them asking the books to be banned for no reason is fucking ridiculous. But so this movie was protested heavily by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property. <laughs> I love that part. <laughs> the property part. The property part, yeah. <laughs> who may, you may remember for their work protesting gay marriage, they were incensed by the film. And this is a quote from them. The film is an insult to the consecrated religious over the centuries who have dedicated their lives to serving our Lord by zealously obeying his commandments and by vowing to live according to the evangelical counsels of poverty, chastity, and obedience. So that's their big, their big takeaway. We could link to their whole article, but it's just like a fucking nasty diatribe. Yeah. Um, and a great example so of what you're talking about earlier about how a group that's protecting property is also concerned with chastity and how that's just a contradiction. <laughs> yes. That's from their article. They have the articles bragging basically about, they claim that they were successful for tanking Benedetta. It's funny because you look at photos of the protests, you'll see five to 10 people outside of one theater in New York city, mm -hmm. um, which is very small to claim a whole nationwide success. Um, also, like this came out in last year, right? Yeah. I mean, we're still yes. in the pandemic, like movies are in the theater aren't doing as well. So it's like, you you didn't do what you think you did, you know? 
Yeah, um, so Verhoeven has not really commented on the protest, but screenwriter David Burke said that he's willing to go through the screenplay line by line to show why the film is not my fault, is the exact quote he had, mm-hmm. um, which is to say that history backs the story. They're very, they're not sweating it. I think the people who protest this sort of, this sort of stuff are always looking for a way to spread their, their vitriol and their vile. And um, I think when people give them, write articles about them or put the camera on them, it just is a way to make them louder. And it's like, maybe they didn't have any, maybe they didn't make it in this movie. Maybe they did or didn't. I don't know. But it's a way to to give them a platform and we honestly should be deplatforming these people like not yeah. not giving them a voice this movie starts out all gas no breaks bartolomeo almost immediately attempting to seduce benedetta like as soon as she is within the convent mm. so my question for y'all cuz i think bartolomeo to me is probably the most fascinating character in the movie is this love at first sight is this is there an ulterior motive oof I'm not a huge fan of how the film handles Bar- Bartolomea because I, I do like that the character itself is very flippant about all the trauma that she's endured. Like within mi- like minutes of meeting Benedetta, she's just like, oh yeah, I was like basically raped my- by my dad, by my brothers, and there's no really use for me. I fought back and he basically tried to kill me. So here I am, la da 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 And like, that's very flippant. And that's like, whoa, that's a lot there. But I do like that the character is so like fiercely sardonic that she's just like, yeah, deal with it. But I think there's, it was a choice to make them immediately strike up a romance uh, without too much being there. Because I think it kind of makes, I think there's something more interesting they could have done about like being a survivor and like latching on to someone you perceive as in a position of power for safety. And if that is what she was doing, that makes total sense. Because she's not like, she's not a nun from what we know of. She, she starts to kind of go through the convent cycle of like piousness and like the 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 prayers and like I forget the name for it but like the years it takes to eventually get to the level of being a nun and she starts to do some of those practices but it doesn't seem like it's something she wants to do it's something she has to do so I think the film plays with these ideas of power between them and sometimes it works but I think how quickly she seduces Benedetta without us really getting a firmer grip on like what like Bartolomeo is doing is kind of a misstep for me because it makes it just seem like this sexualized and abused person is then overly sexualized. So I guess that, yeah, I, that's my my stance. It's a little murky for me. I feel like Benedetta is also like dealing with her coming out and wrestling with those feelings around that. I think that the way that was handled was a bit more tender than the way Bartolomeo's story was handled. And that kind of confused me. Yeah, I agree with you. She She definitely has trauma coming yeah. from her sexual abuse from her family. And um, she, the way I, I I took it is she she was looking for somebody to protect her mm-hmm. in this convent, and unfortunately, because of like the everything that was attached to like her self worth and her confidence and everything like that, mm-hmm. based on that sexual abuse that she received at the hands of her father, which are absolutely dis- disgusting, she only knows of like one way to one thing that she has to offer Mm. which is her her body yeah yeah and so she gives up her and her body to benedetta for for protection is is the way that i is the way that i took it and it's terrible that that's but that it's terrible that that's what she had to do but again she was 
dealing with like basically PTSD from the trauma, uh, but and then uh, which makes Benedetta a terrible person to allow oh, it to happen. Yeah. You know? Oh God. Yeah. 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 So, Segwaying with that, Benedetta is not a good partner. I think very clearly, mm-hmm. and never really ever reciprocates Bartolome's love um, physically. Yeah. So my question is: Benedetta kind of is she just a bad person, or is she being held down by her religious convictions, or is it some? Is she a bad person because of those convictions? Ooh. Um, I think that it's interesting that. I think she's a hypocrite. I'll say that. Cause I think that she, once she receives pleasure from like Bartolomea, she has no problem asking for it again and again, even when there's moments when like, I'm just gonna call it Bardo for sure. Cause she's so, sorry. She has long names. <laughs> when Bardo is just like, I really don't want to, she pushes and pushes her. Like, there's that one scene where she's like, let me just basically masturbate to you. Let me sh- show me a breast. Like, give me something like she takes obviously, but she doesn't have a self-consciousness about receiving pleasure or like scenes earlier when she tells Bardo to put her hands in boiling water to re- re- get the threads back, whatever. She then tells the abscess, like, you know, suffering brings us closer to God. That's what you need to do to like get better, to like be better. So she feels she doesn't, but for whatever reason, that logic doesn't get applied to her like sexual pleasure. So she doesn't abuse herself or flog herself or any kind of like, I just like got off with Bartow. Now I need to like do 500 Hail Marys while like whipping myself. Like, we never see that. So it does feel like she is a bad lover, selfish, and a hypocrite, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. I agree with everything you just said right there. What do you think, Ryan? Yeah, it's complicated. But yeah, I think definitely a bad lover. And I think it's a really interesting thing that she thinks that it's almost as if she perceives, well, if it's not selfish, um, which I think it probably is selfish, but if it's not, it's this weird perception that like giving pleasure sinful receiving pleasure not sinful um which i think is a very weird thing for her to to think um so it's probably more just the hypocrite angle yeah so she's uh so the story was that she almost died died as a child and her parents i think specifically her dad prayed to god to save her and if he did save her he would give over her life to the convent and so when she came of age i don't know however she was 13 or so when they initially took her um that's when they took her and so i i feel like she has already this sense of superiority and um that that's been built in her since a child because her parents no doubt would have told her that god saved you right and so you are here for a purpose and your purpose is to be your purpose is to be a bride of of jesus which the, which they they actually say that nuns are brides of of jesus you know and so she going going in with that your whole life you're you're going to be expecting like that people are under you, they're beneath you, and you and you use them, and that's what she does. She uses Bar- uh, Barto, right? <laughs> so she uses Barto, and also the other thing is that she is extremely smart, and she's very she's able to manipulate, and she's able to like verbally spar with the nun when she's thirteen years old, you know, and so I think all that mixed up makes a really really fucked up person. Yeah. I just want to add the visions from from Jesus, whether they're real or not, absolutely contribute to what you were saying about her having this like, I'm better than you complex because Jesus chose me to be his, the person he talks to on earth. Yeah, it's, I mean, this is basically, so Verhoeven said that he, 
when he was um, thinking about which projects to go with, he was either going to do a, a project about Jesus or something else. And this was one of those somethings else. And then he, afterwards, he's like, well, I, I guess I kind of did my Jesus project anyway, because this is kind of <laughs> like a, the story of Jesus, you know? In many ways. Yeah. Yeah. Which brings kind of the, the next question, I guess I have for y'all. Are her visions real in the world of the film or are they hallucinations? Where is she with that? I think the movie leaves it up to the viewers. Because, for example, we have in the beginning when they're on their way to the convent, accosted by like these French pirates or thieves or whatever. Thieves, not pirates. <laughs> thieves. And she she says, you know, if you God is gonna is gonna haunt or God is gonna do something bad to you. I don't remember exactly what it was. And it turns out that a bird shits on the dude's face. Like, is that a coincidence or did it really happen? Also, later on in the movie, when she she actually gets the stigmata minus the head stigmata, but she gets the foot and the the hand stigmata. Nobody kind of questions that. They're kind of just questioning afterwards because they said, well, you you kind of got your, your stigmata is kind of mid. You also need the the head stigmata. So then she cuts herself. Right. Well, we don't see it happening, but they yeah. accuse her of doing it. And so so I don't know. To me, the, the story kind of the movie leaves it up to you. Uh, it could be. Yes. Very obviously, even towards the end when she she reopens her wounds she reopens her or, or her stigmata is reopened and she's bleeding and we come to find the piece of pottery was in her hands and she dropped it so maybe that one she actually did right because why else would that be there you know i don't know i think i'm more interested in the angle of ryan's question about the true believers versus those who climb to get status and power in the convent slash like church complex. <laughs> Cause I think that's for me, what's more important. Cause whether or not the visions are true, like whether or not she's having visions into her, they're true, or she's not having visions and she's lying and saying they are. I think what matters more is how it influences how other people act around her and how, like what you were saying earlier, Miguel, how the influence changes her and how, the higher she quote unquote climbs to like be closer to Jesus, she loses more and more of her humanity, in my opinion, and just becomes like very cruel. And so I like, I kind of like the film doesn't answer that, but we do see enough to kind of assume like it could be both. So I think the film does that really well. What do you think, Ryan, since you brought up the question and it's a really good one? I think the film, like you all said, I think it's intentionally ambiguous. Yeah. But I do think we get some clues that like, she gets hurt and they're like, we're going to give you seed of poppy to drink. And I'm like, opium? When you say seed of poppy, do you mean opium? And then she's having visions? But like, who knows how long they've been taking seed of poppy for their pain. I think yeah. like you, Cass, um, even though I asked this other question, I'm way more interested in the way the film portrays true believers versus, as you put it, social climbers, which I think is absolutely fascinating. I think if we had to talk about what really drew protests... I would imagine as much as the lesbian sex, the portrayal of higher up people in the Catholic church as social climbers or people who are trying, we're doing this for the power would probably be what really is drawing all this fire for the film. That's one of the things that fascinates me is the intersectionality between religion and politics mm. and how you think that religion is this pure thing. But really, when you think about it, or when you dig into it more, religion is people. 
and people are corruptible and very often are corrupted. And so it's specifically in this movie for Benedetta at the very beginning when she gets her stigmata minus the head part and um, the mother superior is like very doubtful and she's talking to the head of the convent. I, I don't remember his name. Um, and he's like, She's like, I'm, I'm curious if you really think this happened or if you're more interested in what happened to Assisi with uh, St. Francis of Assisi, where like after that happened, well, this, the city got on the map and people started flocking there and tourists and money coming in and that sort of stuff. And maybe that's what you want to happen here. And he doesn't deny it. I have one more serious question. And then we'll talk about the ending and then we'll circle back to some more fun stuff. I guess calling the pair of anguish fun is probably fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll circle back to it <laughs> in, a, in a horror context in a set piece context yes in a yeah. horror loving context that's fun and uh other context now how do y'all think this film would be different if women were involved in the scripting process do you feel like we'd have the same film we think we'd have a different film um to be fair the cinematographer was uh was a woman I I do think that they would probably have maybe added a little bit more polish into how how and why Barto is involved with Benedetta, like in the sense that like, we have all this like lovely ambiguity about Benedetta, but Bartow for the most part is just still a little bit too one note. If you look, if you look too hard at her, like, I feel like the film does this thing where it focuses so much on the ambiguity of Benedetta and all the things happening around her with the politics and her own like need to survive. Cause it's like the only place she can after being like wedded to Jesus at the age of 13. And like those power plays that it kind of distracts you from being like, well, what is Bartow doing on the side aside from just being like, essentially in this indentured servant and now like possibly sex slave because consent is murky there. I think they would have fleshed out her a bit more, given her probably some like side conversations to make it a a bit more complicated. Like maybe even showing like, oh, there is love there, but there's also like resentment and like other other things there that I think the film in this current state just kind of uses her for the sake of the plot. That's interesting. I read Barto more as... I do think she she does become kind of one note as we go, but I think especially at the beginning, I think that she's almost a counterpoint to Benedetta and that she's someone who's actually suffered. That's and a Benedetta, good if she has suffered, it's like at her own hands, as hard as she's willing to whip herself. I don't think there is a world in which Benedetta could have reached a hand into the, the boiling cauldron the way Bartow does without mm-hmm. giving, I mean, she gives a fuck but she's willing to suffer and take risk to, to live better. Well, Benedetta's kind of always lived well. Yeah. That's a great, that's a great thing. I think maybe, I think maybe she starts off strong, but like from the middle onward, I think they just ignore some, some interesting characterization moments. I think that's maybe a better way to say it. Cause I think you're right. I think she does have some fiercely independent, she doesn't get to say much, but the things she does are very powerful. You know, I, I think that's one of the, negatives of this subgenre non-exploitation as i stated earlier is that it it is primarily written and directed by by men by white men and it's a shame that we we don't get to see if i'm using this term incorrectly please let me know but uh like sapphic love stories by by women or people who um identify as women through their lens and I would have loved to see that. There's no way, like, there's no way to tell, like, what 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 it could have been. Uh, it could have been a more tender relationship, and it, maybe not focus so much on the nudity, 
um maybe not so fu- not focus so much on the like the rape scene i mean she is tortured it's rape right she's with that with the instrument you're talking about and that that um scene highly disturbed my my partner and my wife to the point to tears because she just thinking about it is terrifying that to think that somebody has to go through that and and that is an actual like just the historical aspect of that and and she was thinking about all the women who had to go through that and suffer that and it was highly disturbing and perhaps if it was written or directed and written by a woman or female presenting we wouldn't have had to see it you know it's not necessary Thankfully, they don't go too far into it in the scene, you know, but they cut away before but you just hear yelling, but it's pretty graphic and it's pretty, or not graphic, but it's pretty messed up. And yeah. maybe we wouldn't have had to go through that if it was told through that through that lens. Yeah, the pair of anguish is kind of what made me think of this question in the first place. Um, because in a lot of ways, like you're saying at the beginning, Miguel, this is very much, it's not a horror movie for most of the running time. And it's just this pair of anguish scene, I feel like, is really the scene where we we get into the horror. And it really was the scene that makes me wonder, like, how had this been different if a woman wrote this movie? Because mm-hmm. I think the, the scene was shot, if this was in a Saw movie, it would have been shot in a more sensitive way. But because we're in this, like, kind of Oscar bait movie territory, it feels like it's gone much further than this typical, that you typically go in this genre of film. Yeah, I think I think it's that like again, like the subtlety, the nuance of how the, the like the women characters are handled and their lives are handled. I think that's missing a little bit. And I think I'm fine like with seeing some of these things as long as there's a countering to it in some way. It doesn't have to be big, but like something that either shows like um like this is my big problem with like the Game of Thrones series is like I think it's important to have that aftermath of like how people deal with that emotionally or like the kind of conversations that happen behind closed doors that like we know would have happened then as they happen now the same problem i have with like the game of thrones universe is like it's okay to show the violence directed towards women on screen and in a certain light that is important because then you acknowledge like miguel was saying like this stuff happens it has happened by not showing it it's kind of some way a form of erasure so i do think it's important to depict it to an extent but then Mm. to have like the the other side of it too, of like what people are saying about the event, what like people that experience it are saying, show like characterizations of how they have changed after the event. Like that's like the subtle distinctions. I think when this happens and pieces are, are written by like white males, they don't think of keeping that in. And that's really important. Uh, and as like a counter to a film that I think does it really well, and not everyone loves this film, but I love it, uh, The Handmaiden. It's not written by a woman or it's written by a South Korean man, but it's fantastic. It's like a two and a half hour epic. But what's really interesting is it's about this, like, it's basically about this love story between these two different women from two different kinds of sets of power, but they're both being abused, like, emotionally and sexually by, like, the powerful men in this, like, manner that they live in. And it slowly, slowly shows how, like, as they get to understand that they're both struggling in different ways, their interactions with each other like change slightly and power dynamics start to shift. And then it becomes a different film. And I think like you need to see that because there's a level of like, you can both both be women and be like, 
you suck. I don't like you. Um, but there's that acknowledgement of like lived experience of just being like, I know what you went through and there's a high likelihood I've been through the same thing. And there's just like breach of understanding in conversations that happen around that, that I think like also need to be present in films like that. And like, yes, it can feel very shoehorned in, but that's where like a good screenwriter comes in to make it feel natural and not just like a, how are you doing Bardo? (laughs) That's not the way to do it. How'd you like the ending? I don't know. To me, it feels like you need to know when, when to end your movie. And I think it could have ended before that when they were still in the, in the city and everything was set on fire. And like, I was so happy that the townsfolk like came to her aid and uh, rescued her, but they rescued her because she got, she, because she's so smart. She got like the, the previous mother superior to come onto her side and all that sort of stuff. And then then they attacked the, um, the nuncio that was great. Like I love that whole part of it. And I feel like it could have ended there. Um, afterwards, in the scene that you were talking about, where they're in their light in the, the the decrepit building or whatever, and they spent the night together, and she's saying she's gonna she heads back, and Barto wanted to stay. To me, it seems like at that point there's a happy ending, and then there's the kind of like meh ending, and I didn't really feel good about her leaving her quote unquote lover or the person she loves to go back it feels almost like she has a persecution complex right she she feels like the only time she is um really useful is when she's being persecuted and so she goes back to that yeah uh, i was watching shadow and bone on netflix last night and there's this really fun line in it where it's like it's a high fantasy tv show and one of the women like pulls one of the women characters aside uh, and without spoiling it she's just basically like remember saints become martyred before they become heroes and i was like oh what a what an interesting line and i think that like benedetta yeah she has this persecution complex and feels a need to make a a martyr out of herself her going back to the convent after just predicting the black plague and like outing nuncio for being infected like she's going to be returning to a position of power where barto cannot and i think like again it's that contradiction of like choosing like a powerful life over a pious life, but masking it as like the pious choice. So I guess I like that it showed that she is a hypocrite, but I don't know if I needed it. I think I agree. I think that it felt like it again, raised more questions and answers for me where I'm like, why is Barta going back to her? Like that did not end well for you. Why are you, why are you now? Like, do you actually believe this person's sainted? But then you find like evidence that she's not, but you're still willing to give it a shot. Like I don't know. It just, it seems like it wraps some agency for Barto, who's already just like, yeah, I can steal. I'll be fine. We'll figure it out. We'll go on the run. Um, and I was like, why didn't Barto just do that? <laughs> but I get it. It's complicated for her, but yeah, it is too much. I think. What do you think, Ryan? Yeah. I think your points about Barto are great. I think it's a revealing moment for, for Barto and that Barto never believed in anything. I think we always kind of knew that, but I think this moment confirms, I don't know that we need confirmation, I think sometimes it's more interesting when characters kind of left. Um, I do think it's like a masterclass in showing like where a story ends is whether it's happy or sad. Because if you keep going long enough, every story has a sad ending. Like we all die one day. Spoiler alert for all of our real lives. Uh, We're all going down. Going to get cremated or put in a graveyard, turned to a tree or some shit. But 
it's going to happen to all of us. But I do think going back to like earlier, we talked about what we'd have changed if to like to make less historically accurate. Because I think Benedetta has to return because in history, she returned and then was tortured or in a cell for 30 years, which, which sucks. But I think here is a spot where we could have like had a hopeful ending and then a title, then the title card rather than, but I get it. They want her to make a choice, but I think she's made the choice the same way through the entire movie. So I don't know if I need it presented one more time. And this goes to like what Cass was saying earlier about not needing it to be like based on a true story. Like we suffer from the historical context because we do know, or I think if the record is to be believed, she is, as you said, Ryan, imprisoned for 30 years and only only let out to go to mass and every now and then to have um, dinner with, with the other nuns. And so like you, you kind of need to have that scene to kind of show what happened to her, um, that she did go back. Um, so that, that's, I think we suffer a little bit like that with the connection to based on true events sort of thing. If you want to deeper dive into other films, influences of Benedetta, Cass found this great visual essay from Candice Drouet. We'll link in the show notes. The, the only part that I felt like maybe he, the overstepped was with the I'm trying to think of, a, maybe it's just dildo. I was trying to think of a more <laughs> nice way to say it, but with, with that, with the instrument that they used, it felt like somebody who was trying to make a very refined movie and then just couldn't help themselves and just had to, had to add something titillating and salacious, you know? And I think, so when I'm thinking about its connection to the nunsploitation genre, um, that's, that's what I'm thinking is the, the exploitive part of it is that in, in my opinion, other than that. And, you know, th- this, there are some scenes in here that felt a bit, I don't know, maybe not unnecessary. Like the scene in between when, when they're, what did y'all think of the scene when they're um, next to each other in bed, d- divided by the curtain, and then she just starts touching her, mm-hmm. you know? Like, I don't know if that felt exploitive or maybe that was, you know, wh- what did y'all think about that scene? I think it was exploitative. I think he set out, uh, Verhoeven set out to make an exploitation movie. So they just had some stuff like that in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny because I think one of my like the the only last question I had about it, which like actually segues like really good into Miguel's question, is like how much of this is it is how much of the film is an exploitation film? Because for me, I was like, I don't, I, I do, I do see like the the elements, but at times I feel as if like Verhoeven had a checklist and was like, okay, like Virgin Mary dildo, okay, like we have to have like the cloth, but like between these two women, because it's almost like the confessional veil, and then they're gonna like finger each other. Like it's like, <laughs> sorry, sorry, but um, it's like I, it almost seems like, and I know also like looking at that video essay that we mentioned, uh, it does seem like he's homaging a lot more films than I have like the context or experience to speak about, but it does feel like an afterthought and I couldn't quite put my finger on why. So I'm wondering if anyone else feels the same way or if it's just me. Granted, I haven't seen many exploitation films, but it felt like exploitation light maybe. Yeah, definitely. Like I was surprised at how little horror and not all non non exploitation movies are, are horror movies. There's like, well, 
on the same. I, I'm not sure if you mentioned Miss 45, Ryan, but Miss 45 is a non exploitation movie of take that takes place in New York in like the eighties. That one is pretty graphic and maybe it's not on the list because she dresses like a nun, but she's not really a nun. She's oh, a model. <laughs> like comparing that to this, you wouldn't say that this is an exploitation movie, but mm-hmm. I think it has exploitation elements. And he definitely, like, like Ryan was saying, he, he set out to make one and maybe he was reined in mm-hmm. by, by, by other collaborators and stuff like that. Um, but I do, I do know, like, um, he, he wanted to make this movie a long time ago and he was working off of a script from another writer mm-hmm. and that person kind of left the project because of the, the, the route that Verhoeven wanted to take, which was very, you know, more sexualized than that person wanted to take, but Verhoeven defended himself. He's like, well, it, so the book that it's based off, it's called Immodest Acts, but it's subtitled The Life of a Lesbian Nun in Renaissance Italy. So like it's what he's saying, it, it's been there from the beginning, you yeah. know, and he and he brought it out. So I don't know. Um, it's a for me, it's it feels like a drama with horror and non-exploitation aspects. Yeah. Miguel, I had a question for you because I'm not actually sure about this. Exploitation movies. Is the exploitation meaning it was made quickly or does it mean someone is being exploited for the film's profit? Uh, I think it's both. Okay. Um, so the term exploitation started with the black exploitation movies of the 70s and going into the 80s. And those were done... Um, primarily on a, on a cheap budget. And a lot of them were done by like, were produced by white men. And so uh, a, a lot of the um, profits and all that went back into their pockets. So that's the exploited part of it. But also, but it's also about what you focus, what you tend to focus on. So you're focusing on like the negative parts of living in in the in uh, urban housing or living in areas that are impoverished, that sort of thing. So you're exploiting that as well. So it's it it kind of um, encompasses a lot of that. And then from there, that's when we got like the non exploitation, and we got the exploitation and we got the exploitation and just a whole other subgenre of, of movies like that. And also one thing that I wanted to mention that we, we didn't talk about just in general for, for like non-exploitation was some of the movies that um, kind of brought me into the genre was uh, like Haxon. When I was looking it up, Haxon, it deals with witches, but there's also some nuns in there as well. And so I've heard, some people say that is the like one of the first examples of of non-exploitation. Um, so, but some of the other movies that got me into it, like I said, was Miss Forty Five, Satanical Pandemonium, and then Black Narcissist, which is a movie mm-hmm. from the nineteen forties or possibly fifties. I'm not exactly sure now. Like that was another influence on, on kind of my love of the genre because I haven't, like I said, I haven't seen all everything. Yeah. And there's a bunch of stuff like there's some stuff that's just straight up poor. Like a- any genre, there's going to be your good examples and your bad examples. And like we, we could do it with slashers, we could do it with zombies. You're like Walmart bargain bin like movies. There's going to be that sort of stuff, right? But so I, I don't think a, a genre should be judged on its worst aspects. I think it should be judged on its best aspects. And I've and from the best movies that I've seen of it, this is one of my favorite genres. I, I enjoy going back to it. And 
the the nudity doesn't play a part in it for me. I don't really care about that aspect. It's in there and sure, it's fine. I, I don't need it, but it's in there and maybe it allows, you know, for sexual ex- expression for some of these people, which is great. But it's more about like what they're saying about religion, what they're saying about the church, what they're saying about politics in with, within the church, what they're saying about, you know, believers and ze- religious zealotry. All that wrapped up in a ball is what I love about the genre. Well, I see a note in your notes, Ryan, that I would love to circle back to it's about a certain extra in this film. <laughs> yes, this is the one I was going to leave out because I feel like we had such a serious discussion about like sexual politics and who gets to tell whose story with a pair of anguish. I would have loved to see the ad searching for the extra who shot milk out of her boob. Like, how do they advertise that? that was fantastic assuming that that was real and not a prosthetic breast that Either was so way. weird and so out of place that was i completely forgot about that it was just such a weird flex too she was like ah. and i was like what, what? <laughs> yeah but it, it it just goes like nowadays like nuns Nuns can't get married, right? And I, th- I still think, of course, it was like that then. But like priests and people, like bishops and archbishops and the nuncios, now they're not, you're not allowed to be married. But like back then, homeboy had a whole whole ass wife or mm-hmm. mistress or had just had a child, you know. And it just goes to show you like the the different or the uh, evolution of religion right the reason why they're taking these women into the nun into the convent is so that they can get their dowry or mm-hmm. when uh the reason why a um a priest can't get married is so that when he dies all their land all his land and all his property goes to the church and so there's a reason why the church is the biggest uh, is the biggest holder of real estate in the world and it's because of all the money that they've gotten from all these, uh, their nuns and their priests that they're exploiting in order to do that. So religion, it's all about money and power and like sex. And it's, it's like fascinating. It's really, it's really fascinating. Yeah. It's so the way it was taught to me is a little different, um, but I think both things can be true. I think there's always more than one reason things happening. I was taught that priests couldn't marry because and popes couldn't marry because one, there's a while, the papacy was just like passed from like father to son for a couple right. of generations. And two, like when priests could marry, they were taking multiple wives and they were fucking everyone in the parish. <laughs> if you were a woman in the parish, oh. the priest wanted to fuck you. And there's like a bunch of sexual abuse related to that. So they took, the way it was taught to me was like, they, that was why the priests got the ability to marry take away, which of course led to... to to also sexual abuse. I know, right? Like that's uh that's not the problem. <laughs> problem is bad people that deserve not to be in positions of power, not yes. being like now we're going to force you in your bad habits to be in secret. I didn't realize there were so many non-exploitation films out there and now I'm excited to like dip my toes into a couple others and see what else is out there. I'm curious. I'm really curious. Yeah. I just feel like I have to be like in the right place with, with no guests over. <laughs> to watch these movies it just makes me like like you said earlier Cass I feel dirty when I'm watching them yeah, I was I just like, that's the point but. yeah yeah I guess I also like I guess my ending thought about exploitation films is I kind of avoided them because I I knew that they were films that were I guess from some people's perspective they're monopolizing on like a trend or part of a culture that we you know will like 
sell well and is like quote unquote lewd. But I also think what's so interesting is like they're also they bring up such fruitful conversations like today's about like what's taboo and why. Why do I yeah. feel this way looking at this thing that is widely seen and why? Like I think there's as much as exploitation films can delve into like icky territory for me. I think it's also if it's done in good faith, I think that's exactly the point. And that's really cool. So thank you both. Cause I've, I've been afraid of the exploitation genre for a very long time and I just like avoided it. But now I think it's, I feel a bit more safer to like explore a little. <laughs> Miguel, we kind of went through at the beginning. Is there anything else you want to plug? Um, yeah, you can just, you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, um, at MHC pod. You can follow me on Instagram at my horror confessional. Yeah. Just check out the, uh, check out the show and hope you like it. Yeah, definitely. Y'all um, check out my horror confessional. Your episode on Blackula and the research at the beginning was phenomenal. Um, so oh, thank you very much. Like a, a jumping on point. I would say the Blackula episode of my 70s confessional is just fucking excellent. Awesome. Thank you. Wow. Thank you so much, Miguel, for joining us. This yeah, has been a blast. <laughs> I had a great time.